from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider Live from Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam. Coming up on today's show, we talk about Binance, we have special guests and we have a live audience. Uh, All right, Uh, for those of you listening at home and around the world, we're coming to you live from the arena stage at Money 2020 in Europe. How are you doing? Yeah, you're feeling good? You're surrounding me. I can't see all of you. I need to take a look at you. You feeling good? I like the sound of that. All righty. David. Yeah, this is the second time we've done this. It's kind of of bizarre. Like the very first FinTech Insider Live that we did was last year in Copenhagen. Was any of you guys there last year? Show of hands. Show of hands. Okay, cool. That's that's pretty good, pretty good going. Um, if you were there, you know probably what's to come here on this one. And you'll probably know that very early on last year. So we were on at 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of started drinking at 11 a.m. last year in Money 2020. Like, yeah, but I was asleep by 3 p.m. I'm not going to oh, lie last year. So, um, But we're, I think we're good this year when we're actually starting off all the stuff. So uh, here's to... What is it? Yopen Adrian Witt. Yeah, so right before the show... Um, we went with uh, Jeff, or I went with Jeff, who's actually hey Jeff. Dutch and from Goodness. here. Hi, Jeff. Um, Jeff heads up our consulting practice. He took me across the street to the supermarket to buy beer. I figured we were going to get Heineken. He looked at me like I was an idiot. Evidently, Heineken's like water or like Coors Light. So we have beer that has alcohol content from like 7.5 and up to what's illegal in the U.S., 11.6. That's a drug in the U.S. Yeah, so if we start slurring, blame Jeff. Everybody can see where Jeff is. You can blame him. Um, so, David, why don't you introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are? Yeah, I'm David Breer. I'm the CEO of 11FS, if any of you guys don't know me. Uh, Sam, who are you? I'm Sam Mall. I head up uh, 11FS for North America. And uh, I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder and blockchain practice lead at 11FS. It's been a busy year, hasn't it? It's been an insanely busy year. Uh, it's been uh, what a year we've had as well. This time last year, the podcast. Since this time last year, the podcast has been downloaded millions of times, with every single episode going out to more than 180 countries. Can't believe how well it's doing. Um, and it's available on iTunes now. So you know, go subscribe, people. I'm looking at you all. Have you subscribed yet? Go do it. Um, I'll take a microphone out and make sure you have. We can do a live session. Um, Sam, since the first live show, we've been pretty busy, right? It's been nonstop. I'm launching a, a business in the U.S. The, here's the thing I like the most about, I used to live in the U.K., and we make fun in the U.S. of the U.K. and Europe for red tape. We, th- we got nothing. And you got nothing on us, right? Setting up a business in the U.S. when you're dealing with tax laws for federal, state, city, county, if you're close to a state line, that. We were on a call, and Simon actually hit me up on Slack and goes, what is wrong with you? <laughs> What's wrong with you people? So it's been challenging, but fun. It's going to turn into a bit of a self-help group here, isn't it? Which is, which is pretty good. But yeah, since last year, we've done a show in Helsinki. We've done a show in Dublin. We've done a bunch of After Dark events as well. It has been kind of crazy, which is cool. So uh, as you know, we'll need a hell of a lot of audience participation as we go through this. So uh, we just want to make sure you guys are there. Can you give us a big cheer, please? One, two, three. Now. <laughs> Hey, that's good. Awesome. Lots of friends here, right? 4 p.m. is the time to be doing this stuff. All right, so here's the way the show's going to work. Uh, we've got six guests waiting in the wings, uh, lots of friends around the show as well. Uh, we're going to tackle some of the hotter stories in fintech, um, but we're not going to bring out all the guests at once. Uh, we're going to bring out two guests. Uh, we're going to bring them out in pairs. We're going to bring them out in two by two, much like the Noah's Ark of fintech, I guess, right? Nice. Kind of weird. Wow. Um, yeah, we, we, I made a biblical joke on a fintech podcast. Wow. That just happened. That was for yep. the Americans. Just lost the American audience. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and we're drinking beer, so there goes the Middle yeah, East as well. We're, we're kind of bad, right? Um, but who have we got first, Sam? Um, so first up, and I'm going to ask you to come on up if you would, we have Lita Glyptis. Where are you, Lita? Fabulous Lita Glyptis, who's the CIO at Qatar National Bank. In the U.S., that'd be Qatar, but uh, Qatar, I believe, is a correct pronunciation, right? And Lita also writes a great blog. I think it's Lita Posts on Thursdays, right? That's right. And then we also have her partner for the FinTech Noah's Ark thing is Rob Froine. Hello, Rob. Rob is the CEO and co-founder of Cabbage. And, oh, Catherine is here. And we are honored because we have his co-founder. Don't shake your head. (laughs) Catherine, Catherine, raise your hand and wave everybody. Catherine is one of the most 100 most powerful women in her head goes down. 100 most powerful women in the world by Forbes magazine. I think she came in at 99, 98, 98. So That's there's two her, less powerful her, women in the world. You knew that was coming. I, now, I, I, now you don't know this, but her husband now only refers to her as 98. We, <laughs> we love that joke. We have done that now on three podcasts. By the way, jeez, oh, you making she, me. She looks bad. really comfortable right now. Like really <laughs> uncomfortable. You're not liking this attention, are you? No, All right, we'll move on. Attention. All right, so so we're going to do a quick set. We're going to do about 15 minutes talking with the two of you. And and Rob, I want to start with you because Cabbage has been in the news like crazy. You've had a busy um, marketing month if you will, but first of all, international nothing, audience. Nothing if not shameless marketers. Never, right, never. never. Um, just real quick, the 30-second pitch, what Cabbage is. Cabbage provides working capital to small businesses uh, directly under its own brand in the U.S., and we partner with institutions globally to license our technology so they can launch the same experience that we do in the U.S., wherever they are. We're actually expanding, though, um, and you know the, the thing that we're focused on going forward is really cash flow as a service, providing um, a more... Um, complete set of tools and, and products to, to small businesses that allow them to focus on what they do best. And what you're going to find is Rob is incredibly prepared and has all his Twitter hashtags ready. So I love that. Cash flow as a service. You're so clever. Catherine wrote that. We all know better. Um, and, and, and he's being rather um, uh, humble here. Cabbage is an incredibly successful company in the U.S. You guys have done a, a wonderful job. Started 2000. 2009, right? Yeah, it did. It's, we're approaching our 10-year anniversary, which is amazing because Catherine and I each look like we're 25, right? Yes, you do. Yeah. Pretty much right there. Beautiful people. Yeah. So, yeah. so back in 2008, you were like, crisis, what crisis? Like, let's start a company. You know, yeah, well, like, uh, you know, you never know where the bottom is. And if we're at the end of the bottom or the beginning of the bottom, that's a good time to start a business. Don't, don't, don't try to time things. Yeah. Just do them. I'm, I'm looking at, at Simon because he wants to do a Drake joke right now. Do I? Started at the bottom. And oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, Drake joke. It. Yeah, no, that, I did that on stage, and now I haven't had enough beer to start at the bottom and <laughs> make it here. Like, <laughs> I need more beer. What about yourself, Leader? Yeah, I think, I think we're pretty clear what QMB do. Bank, right? That's right. Busy well, times. Yeah, uh, full stack bank, um, leading bank in the Middle East and Africa. So a very different market. Uh, mm. It's always nice to come back to Europe and find that it's as hot here as where I left. Uh, but yeah, QMB is mostly focusing in in Middle East and Asia. Very cool. And I right. remember we were in London by London Bridge a couple of years ago. We were hiding out in a... In a host- kitchen. In a kitchen. You interviewed me in a kitchen. Yeah, I was interviewing her, everybody. We had this was great conversation. Was the place was yeah, but the people, the people looking at us when we came out of the kitchen did not know that. And my sound guys hated me because we were by a refrigerator that literally kept kicking on with a broken motor, so it was not the greatest sound quality. But you were telling me that you were going to change jobs at that time, right. and you weren't going to believe where you were going to go, and Qatar is not what sprung to mind for me. No, and, and even for myself, when I got the call about the job, it's like, sounds great, where is it? <laughs> it's actually <laughs> a nice Google part of the Maps. world. Yeah. And then you realize that in terms of, you know, reach, 
per capita income, um, oil production. You, sh- you should have known where it is. And now I do. Love that sense of adventure. Um, and let's adventure on to the first story. We've got to kick this one off with the biggest thing to happen in payment authorizations. Well, like, forever. Like, this is a, as payment stories go, this one's a pretty rock and roll one. So there was a visa outage across Europe. Did anybody see this? Yeah. Did in, was anybody <laughs> affected? Jamie, Jamie was. Of course Jamie was. So about, like, maybe... 30% of the audience were affected by this thing. Okay, so um, Visa says the service is returning to normal um, after a system failure with less, which left customers across Europe unable to make some purchases. They apologized and said they have no reason to believe the hardware failure was down to any unauthorized access or malicious intent. Um, and they say that Visa accounts for one in three pounds of UK spending. Um, and there was... Apparently, it was restricted to just the authorization process. So the settlement and the, and the, the kind of the clearing and the settlement on the back end was fine. To the customer, the card was showing up as declined, and then they were being charged twice for a declined transaction. So this is this is a pretty pretty nasty mess up that happened. Yeah, I think the tail on this one's going to be quite long, isn't it? Trying to figure out what actually happened. It's interesting that they're actually saying it is a hardware failure that actually sort of put this yeah. out because yeah. there's a few bits in there. It just doesn't 100% match up. I'll be honest. So. Uh, I would be interested to see what the FCA do on this one, whether there's any sort of recourse around uh, you know, the, the double payments and, and really how they're treated. But I think we saw Visa kind of come out pretty strong this morning with a, look, this was bad. We're doing everything we can to mm-hmm. fix it. You know, we, um, we're you know, doing everything in our power to put it right, which is all you can really expect at this stage. Well, I think on the main stage, the very first word out of the, the Visa person's mouth was sorry. Yeah. And that was actually, and the crowd laughed, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the right way. <laughs> Have you ever had to go through... I'm not saying cabbage is wonderful, and you've never had an issue ever. <laughs> you, ever you ever been through a crisis? Yeah. So, so early on, when we first started the company, there was like six or seven of us, and we were working in a 1,600 square foot office. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, um, the cleaning person would come in and, and clean the office, and she happened to plug her vacuum cleaner into the same strip that our server was plugged in, and we Silicon went down. Valley show. <laughs> uh, it literally <laughs> happened. Um, so both of our customers were impacted. Um, at that point, <laughs> Catherine and Rob, right? Pretty much, yeah. pretty much. That's that's uh, that was. And then the other the other one we had was uh, Amazon AWS uh, went down for like uh, they, they they went down for like a day, but some um, customers were affected for like three or four days. This was about five years ago. We were one of the three or four day impacted customers, so that happened to us as well. Crazy. Um, so we've we've had those types of crises in the past, and then you figure that out and you learn how to try to. Um, you know, not have that happen again. So Isn't it interesting that in this day and age, infrastructure is still so important. Whether it's AWS and cloud-based or whether it's Visa's own operated hardware, it going down is still key. And we talk about being in the age of cashless. Like, as soon as this happens, people are like, oh, what do I do? Because I think it was like a Friday night and people all around London couldn't buy alcohol. It was, it was tragic. <laughs> oh, God, I didn't think of that. <laughs> oh, my Awful. God. Ta- taxis being turned over. Like, <laughs> oh, there was, there was riots in the street. But, it, but it's really interesting because we are all in our information bubble where we actually almost immediately knew what was going on. But for the average consumer, it, it felt personal. Mm. And it took quite a long time for it to filter down that this is not you, this is not uh, a, an issue with your post, this is not an issue with your card. And I was actually in Greece when it happened, and it was very interesting to see in a society that is actually quite disengaged from the fintech ecosystem how many people experienced a problem and they thought it was something to do with their bank or something to do from a store 
perspective with their pause. And that information was just not there. And even after I said, no, no, it was Visa, they were like, are you sure? Why didn't I hear about it? And of course, in the mainstream media outside, I suppose, London, mm. um, it, it didn't feature until day three. So the user experience around an auth decline on a card is horrible unless you've got something real time on your phone going, hey, sorry about this. Or like you can have that proactivity, but you need that real time authorization system to be able to manage that, which we see some of the challenger banks starting to do, but it's still pretty rare that you're, that you're getting that anyway. Listen, I'm up against it on time. I got to move us to the next story. And well, since we got you here, um, Cabbage apparently are competing with PayPal um, by entering the payments processing space. What's wrong with you? Yeah, why? <laughs> that you was my line. Like, this <laughs> just happened to Visa and now you're going to do this? Yeah, well, now it's, it's clear there needs to be a better... better uh, oh, I see. Uh, okay. Catherine wrote that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, look, I mean, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about this uh, hashtag cash flow as a service uh, concept, <laughs> but... There, oh, this guy. If you keep there saying you it, it'll there catch on. Somebody will like, Jamie, tweet that now. Somebody's doing it. No, Somebody's please. doing it. Hashtag hashtags as a service. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a great idea. Look at that. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, there's a business We'll idea. send you the bill. I think we're, uh, you know, what we're focused on is, again, we're, we design for the customer and we solve for everything else. And so if you're designing for the customer, you're focused on figuring out what their needs are. We have a, we have a saying that we use, let the bakers bake, which means if you opened up a bakery because you're a great baker, you want to spend all of your time doing that. You don't want to spend your time managing your cash flow. And so what are the, the key functions or features that we need to provide to a customer in order to allow us to manage that process for them. And that's what we're really focused on. So without any pressure, because he's sitting right next to you, what do you think of that move? I mean, we're talking square. I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, my my original reaction was pretty much what Sam said, coming from an incumbent perspective where payments is increasingly an unprofitable business and you you have someone coming on later who knows much more about this than I do. Um, But but you're not coming in with that baggage. And I I see the appeal of... um, owning more of the value chain. I totally see that from a business perspective. What I don't see, and I'm not sure you'll tell us here, but it would be nice if you did, is what, um, what's the tipping point? Like, what volume do you need for that to actually pay off as a gamble? So, um, you're right. I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you're so insightful. It's incredible. <laughs> tell I, me. Now, now I know why you have her on as a guest. Um, you know, for us, again, what, you know, we, have a, we have about 150,000 customers in the U.S., um, we work with banks and have you know many thousands of customers beyond that through our partnerships. Uh, and again, we're we're I, we don't think about small businesses as um, thinking about oh who's my payments provider, who's my deposit provider, who's my is that for me? Yeah, it's yours. Oh, that's fantastic because that way um, you will tell us the tipping point. Uh, yeah, that's right. Who's my lending provider? We think small businesses think about cash, and so you know the the way we're constructing our system is. Um, to allow them, again, just to have the, ca- the cash component of their business seamlessly managed. So I'm curious. I'm going to give you time to drink that beer. Catherine, because you're here, when the news came out, because obviously this was in the works for a while, right? You just don't spring out that you're suddenly going to take on PayPal and, and Square. So when the news came out of PayPal buying iZettle, what was that day like? And, and what do you think of that move? I think it makes sense for them. It's an extension of what they already do. Um, it's in Europe, so it's not directly competitive to what we're doing in the U.S. I thought the same thing with Square um, when they acquired the um, logistics company for restaurants. I mean, I, th- I think that there's a lot of synergies for them there. It makes a whole ton of sense. She's, you're so powerful. 
That was really so good. So damn powerful. <laughs> All right. Um, next story is uh, apparently millennials now trust tech companies more than banks. Uh, this comes from Business Insider. A survey of 2,000 people in the UK. So I don't know how much you can trust this um, because it came from the UK. Brits are mad. Uh, says that the majority of 18 to 24-year-olds trust Amazon and PayPal ahead of banks when it comes to protecting their personal data, which I thought was interesting. Um, they collected the survey data ahead of the visa outage. Um, and 77% of people surveyed don't trust Facebook with their data in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So I guess it sucks to be Facebook, but it's kind of good if you're Amazon or PayPal right now. Like, you're in that sweet spot. What do we think about this one? Hmm. Very low sam- sample, right? 2,000 people to make yeah. such a bold assumption seems, seems like a bit of a jump. It's also very... Um, trust is one of those words that unless it's very, very tightly defined, and it won't be for this kind of survey. It could mean anything. It could mean, yes, I would actually switch, or it could mean, yeah, I'm going to stick it to the man now. Um, millennials have historically um, been cavalier with, with their data, so the fact that they trust these entities doesn't necessarily mean very much. Sure. So I'm just curious, mean- Rob, from your standpoint, from your customer base, so, again, small business, medium-sized businesses for loans, right? And, and, and working with you, what percent, do you have like a, I know you're not going to give me the number, but what sort of percentage do you see of a, a younger demographic? Actually, for small businesses, think of our customer base as the restaurants, retailers, dry cleaners, lawyers, doctors, accountants. Uh, you know, we have, um, it's, it's not really a millennial audience for the most part. Um, we do have a, a fair share, but we have a, the bulk of our customers really fall into sort of the 35 to 49 um, or 35, 39 to 55 sort of small business owner age. Um, is is pretty typical, but we have a lot that fall on both sides of that um, that range as well. Uh, of course, people trust Amazon, and 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 then if you had asked that survey six months ago, Facebook would have been in that list too. Yeah. So what I think is interesting about that is they trust Amazon to protect their personal data for buying stuff off Amazon, right? I mean, there's the, it's not to leader's point. It's not implied there what the trust of protecting that personal data is really about. But I want to ask the audience, like, who would you trust more than? Uh, the banks to protect uh, your data. And I want to see show of hands from around the room. Would you trust Amazon more than your bank to protect the, your personal data? We've got one there from Ali from Fintech Finance. I Thank you, Ali. I kind of would. I trust yeah. Amazon with everything. You're a millennial. I know, I know right? Flagrant. Like, thank God GDPR came along. That's all I can say. How many are Amazon Prime customers? Look at that. Good. Wow, that's just oh. about everybody. That tells you a lot about our audience. Um, what about PayPal more than your bank to tra- protect your personal data? One guy, two people, two people. How many have a PayPal account? Who who doesn't actively think about who's protecting their data? Good question. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know Uh, what we should be asking is is everyone who's working the event, not the people coming to the event, mm -hmm. because we're, we're... yeah, no, we're not real people. We're in the bubble. I, yeah. I, have, I have one other question. Who believes that your data is right now out in the wild and wasn't protected at some point in the past by somebody? Mm. Yeah, that's just about everybody. Who's sick of us asking questions to the audience? <laughs> <laughs> like, Jamie's put his hand up for everything we've said. Like, who's, who's hungry right now? Yeah, there we go. There we go. Jamie's listening to Spotify. Who loves orange soda? Um, All right, so uh, that concludes part one of the show. It's gone quickly. We've got to say uh, thank you to Lita, and thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please give him a round of applause. And I've got to bring on our next 
pair of guests, which we have some mood lighting for temporarily. Ooh, this whoa. is amazing. Um, so the first guest, the one and only Sarah Fien. And Sarah, would you mind joining us on stage? Woohoo! We have a microphone for you, Sarah from Clearmatics. Thank you very how are you? much. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. And our very own global head of consulting at 11FS. It is DJ Jazzy Jeff Tyson. Jeff, please join us. Woohoo! <laughs> Jeff's Dutch. Does anybody notice something interesting about this? It's like a giant. <laughs> we have a running joke of, um, what was the movie? Lion King, where they yep. raise the kid up so he can it's talk. It's so Rafiki. Yeah. So, raising so, up the Lion King is what we need to do to make Sam tall enough to stun it. So, so we do it as well, because no, with her, with her, say, her come on, come on, come on, come on. Just, just, come on. She is come on. so much different, Come on, actually. come on. Uh, <laughs> isn't that cute? <laughs> so, so, well, no, what I think it is, me, Jeff, you're just too tall. Um, Sorry. And now Correct. we've established that. We are here. Um, for any of you that listen to Blockchain Insider, this is the blockchain portion of the show, and we're kicking off with cargo on a blockchain, not cargo sh uh, shorts. Um, this comes from Coindesk. Uh, apparently, the world's largest shipping firm now tracks cargo on a blockchain. And Sarah, you read up on this one a little bit. What's going on here? Yeah, so we have uh, shipping giant Maersk has revealed the completion of its first live blockchain trial. Uh, it's aiming to simplify the way in which it sends trillions of dollars worth of products around the world. Whoa. Trillions wow. of dollars, yo. Yeah. yeah, but like it's a pilot that's not doing the trillions of dollars. This pilot is like one transaction. I believe so, yes. Um, so they used Hyperledger Fabric, which is open source, and it involves a partnership between Maersk and Fabric, and Maersk and IBM, sorry. There's a JV there, I think, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So they have, um, I think there's a minimum requirement of four nodes, and they're currently being shared amongst Maersk and um, IBM. Uh, but the point of blockchain is really to change these business models. So for me, I find it a bit um, truncated at the moment. So the idea would be to get everyone involved in that value chain, in that supply chain, to be running nodes, to be owning their, their process, to be mutualizing the risk between them. So if I'm going to use a new technology to do the same old shit the same old way I used to do it a bit faster, is that innovation or is that doing the same old shit I used to do a bit faster? That sounds like digitization. Yeah, exactly. It's literally like digitizing an old analog process rather My than actually word. rethinking it. Well, and yeah, I, like, so for 11FS, digitization is a bit of a dirty word and digitalization is its evil twin, right? Like you can't take something that used to be analog and try and put some digital on it. It's like, I was led to believe everything could be fixed with blockchain. Is that not true? I'm here to inform you, David, that sadly, no. And Damn it. But the tooth fairy is still real. All of those investments I've made have been bullshit. <laughs> investments or speculations? Yeah, there we go. Speculations in 11 coin be rife, yo. You know what I like about this story, though? If there's, if personally, if there's one industry that I think is on the cutting edge when it comes to innovation, it is the shipping industry. Do you realize the percentage of ships that was basically no one on them? I mean, literally. Really? Right? Didn't know that. Ex-Navy guy, right? Uh, so <laughs> I have 10 years. So I spent a ton of time on oceans. The number of shipping container ships that are out there that are basically uh, almost peopleless, it's, it's, and that's going to be, that is, will be the norm shortly. So the fact that Maersk is taking a look at blockchain and what they can do there, I'm not shocked at all. Well, I think uh, part of the reason for going into this was a disappointing financial year because some of the uh, ships were also cargoless too. Yeah. 
Wow, that's a uh, very expensive, empty thing yeah, moving around yeah. there, right? Yeah, very. Uh, I don't know. I'm always a bit skeptical of these types of things, and I think we, we see these announcements happening on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis. I think what's interesting, I mean, clearly they're one of the largest companies in, in the shipping industry. And um, so one of the things in the article was, uh, so it, it spoke about the fact that 30 people, so for every single uh, container that's being shipped, it apparently involves 30 people uh, and God knows how many organizations, more than 200 separate interactions. So clearly, I think if there's something that can help them to resolve that and reduce cost, it should be the blockchain. Oh, there's that word, the blockchain again. Mm-hmm. Our blockchain and the blockchain are a different the thing. Facebook. The Facebook. The, yeah, it's like using wheel technology to solve something. It just sounds <laughs> weird. Um, all right, uh, next story. From a shipping company offering trade finance to a crypto exchange investment fund. Uh, so Binance. Hands up if you've heard of Binance. Okay, so Binance being one of the... Yeah, Anna Herrera has definitely heard of Binance. Um, (laughs) One of the largest crypto-to-crypto exchanges in the world. The Um, largest. The largest. um, uh, So they have announced uh, a $1 billion investment fund. Sarah, walk us through this one as well. Yes, so a billion dollars to them is not really very much, I believe, um, given that they traded... or Five billion of crypto was traded over the last 24 hours. Binance. Wow. Um, That's yeah, so, so <laughs> certainly, yeah. So the the Community Influence Fund, which is, is a, an which is a really scary sounding name. We're going to influence the community with a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hmm. So they've set up this one billion dollar fund to uh, both fund startups and also fund funds. So they're looking at um, asset managers by side who have got experience with managing $100 million AUM. Uh, they like small funds managed by experienced investors. Um, like if you've yeah. got some weird funny money, make more money by creating a fund of funny money. Yeah, like, and actually Laura mentioned... <laughs> sorry, Laura, to bring you, bring you into this. Producer um, Laura, hey. Producer Laura, hi. <laughs> uh, Laura said before it's potentially that they've got so much money they don't know what to do with it. Well, so they are making an insane amount of money, Jeff. Did you see this stat from a little while it's ago? Ri- ridiculous. I mean, the fact that they're trading $5 billion of crypto within 24 hours is nuts. It's absolutely mental. And in Q1, they announced they made... like So their, their revenue, not just the trade on the platform, but their revenue... Was $300 million at a 97% profit margin. That's my favorite stat. Wow. I mean, granted, they are basically arbitraging. Like, I mean, Jesus, compliant. what are we doing here? Yeah. No, well, <laughs> you, you and I came out of consulting, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's like that a hell of a margin. 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 <laughs> we, have great, we had great margins in our old job. <laughs> yeah, we're doing something wrong. Sure, something. Surely, though, if they really want to sort of influence the community, they need to start going into politics, right? Like, with $7 billion, you can get elected, surely. Well, so there's a, there's a lobbying organization called Coin Center that a certain exchange that may be here may have put up a load of money to invest in. Moving <laughs> 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 on! <laughs> um, but it, but it, to me, this is like just a sign the scale of these numbers here. So um, we've seen that... Um, did anybody see that EOS went live? Um, EOS is one of these Ethereum competitors, another sort of cryptocurrency with a network. They've raised $4 billion. Um, and that's, that's in an ICO, effectively. Yeah, year-long ICO, $4 billion. That's massive. So is big finance coming to this space, or is this still the Wild West? Uh, I think it is. I mean, we're certainly seeing in the work we do at Clearmatics that we get, we're getting a lot more institutional interest in going live, not just proof of concepts. Um, and obviously, at the end of last year, the CME and CBOE um, launched the Bitcoin futures. So that allowed... Uh, investors, speculators, whatever you want to call them, to kind of speculate on the downside as opposed to just Speculate is going to speculate. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious for the audience, 
How many have an email in LinkedIn telling them about an ICO that's coming out and you have a chance to invest? How many are tired of emails that are telling you, Evan? Yeah, I swear <laughs> to God. Well, you can we see should why rename you, spam ICO. You can see why Google and Facebook banned the advertising for some of this stuff because oh, there yeah. was a gold rush and people kind of rushed in. But at the same time, you've got like the more mature assets, your Bitcoins, your Ethereums, and, and others, that now your large institutional investors are taking seriously. So you've got Goldman have a prop trading desk, JPM do, Barclays do, and now they're looking at like, okay, we've got the prop trading desk. How do we bring institutional liquidity into this? You may never buy a Bitcoin, but your pension fund may hold some underlying asset that is pegged to Bitcoin. So this is a really interesting concept of as these digital assets mature, the Adam Smith thing is true. Like, if there's money to be made there, the big markets are going to make money and they're going to figure out how to make them comply. I think, I think what's interesting, though, is despite all the noise and, and regulators stepping in and looking into ICOs, if you look at the number of ICO offerings and the money that's being poured into ICOs, it's actually higher than last year. And it's, so and last it's year typically t- not retail investors that are buying in now. It's exactly. the single-family offices, the multi-family offices. Like, if you're in cap markets, you can't avoid this discussion at the moment because it's not just cryptocurrencies that are exciting people. If anything, it's real estate. It's uh, loan origination. It's private equity. It's all of these things that were really manual and really painful for, to do for big investment banks. Now, suddenly, they look at these crypto asset things and they go, all right, well, they've turned uh, like this funny money into a digital token, and that's nice. But what if we could turn real estate into a digital token? What if we could turn private equity into a digital token and increase the participation and increase the liquidity into that market? And now you see the custodians and like the infrastructure providers in capital markets really starting to take this market seriously. I think Binance is just one example. Right? I think Andreessen Horowitz is looking to set up a, a dedicated crypto fund. You've got, uh, I think it was the partner from Sequoia who left Sequoia as well to set up a fund together with one of the co-founders of Coinbase. So there's loads and loads of people moving and, into and, this space. And uh, A16Z invested in a company called Harbor. Mm-hmm. Harbor are a company, look them up, um, they, harbor.com. They are doing that sort of real estate and kind of non-traditional, non-listed market instruments. So your real estate, so your loan origination, your private equity, they're doing those as tokens. So it's going to be interesting to watch how that develops. But the most, like, most ICOs are still like I don't think Adobe knew what they were doing when they created oh, no. the, the PDF creator. Most ICOs are still yeah. like selling PDFs, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and there's so much dodgy stuff out there, and it doesn't surprise me. Therefore, that regulators are coming in and killing the scams, and more needs to be done on that. And I think the industry hasn't done itself any favors coming from this anti-establishment background, where it's like screw central banks, we don't need anything, and it's kind of got this like you know anti-establishment feel to it. But I do think there are very serious people in there trying to make it work. And for those people that are trying to make, a, make sense of this innovation and deliver it, it's extremely frustrating that there's so much crap out there that grabs the headlines because there is simply so much and there are no clear rules. Yeah, and that's what I like about this one is that it's not just um, coin speculation. They are actually putting real money into trying to make the infrastructure better and more usable and more accessible by investing in these startups as well. And it's not just, um, it's not just Binance that have done it. There's the Ethereum Community Fund, uh, Ripple's Spring. Sorry if I've butchered that Ripple. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, the Ripple. EOS. Sorry, Ripple. Sorry, Ripple. Sorry, Ripple. Um, <laughs> For anybody that doesn't know, we had a bit of a tweet storm with the uh, Ripple community a little while ago. So. Ongoing. <laughs> um, all right. So um, that brings us to the end of our uh, blockchain uh, piece of the show. But if you liked what you heard, then uh, Blockchain Insider is available on iTunes now. Thank you very much, Jeff and Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Imagine. 
A new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Before we get our next guests on, um, David, you put out a tweet saying, like, if anybody has any announcements, like, let us know. Yeah, I like, you know when you tweet your email address and then a billion people use your email address? But I think you've got some highlights, right? Yeah, so uh, Yolt got in touch and Yolt said they're expanding into Europe, I believe France and Italy. So well done, Yolt. Woohoo! Well done. Good for them. Nice job expanding. I think 300,000 customers now in the UK, which for a PFM app is, is really good going. So uh, great to hear. Um, OP, Christian, gives a wave. Um, so you've launched NetVisor, part of, uh, launched a product with NetVisor. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. Thumbs up from Christian. Feeling good. Part of the Visma Group, the biggest accounting firm in the Nordics. Well done. Uh, we actually talked to you uh, about this earlier on, so this will be coming out on our YouTube channel any second now. Cool. I mean, that one sounded pretty interesting. Um, and, of course, uh, wouldn't be an 11FS podcast if we didn't get a cheeky plug in there. Um, so our very own Sarah Kachansky's written her first research report for us. Um, so you can find the link at 11FS.com. Um, following some very scientific research, a Twitter poll, uh, you, where you guys told us you find reports unengaging. The research goes out of date fast. She's aiming to shake up that format uh, with some interactive and evergreen research on the subject of onboarding. Coming this Wednesday, so look out for it. Very good. And now for our final pair of guests. So uh, from way back when, when the podcast was just very young, we've got Anna Herrera. Come on, Anna. Anna is the fintech correspondent for Reuters. Uh, And joining her, we have Peter Hazu, who is the director of business development at Microsoft. Come and join us, Peter. Well done. Welcome to the show, guys. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. All right, so... It's it's been a while with Anna, though. Like, Anna literally left the UK to go and live in New York to get away from us. You you don't like me anymore. We just keep dragging you back, right? (laughs) Every time we're in the same place. I flew just for this. Thank you. We appreciate it. So it was like episode two and episode four. Like, (laughs) if you go way back to the beginning of iTunes, there was a lot of Anna, and she helped us go. The beer was very casual there then. I feel now it's more like... Prepped. Do you want? Would you, no, would you no, like what? I'm would you like a beer? Yeah. No, no, there was I'm an ice bucket. It might be terrible. <laughs> to be fair, it was the Money 2020 folks who hooked us up with the ice and the bucket and everything, so That's they sorted us out. Thank you, Money 2020. Thank you. Well done. All right, so the first story uh, that we got here is uh, Starling, um, who are a, a sort of challenger bank in the United Kingdom, have raised some funding and They've split from TransferWise. Um, so they've raised another £80 million, and um, they've, uh, apparently the need for them to increase its capital is thought to be related to the bank's bid to be one of the recipients of the Capability and Innovation Fund, which is a great name for a fund, which was set up by the Royal Bank of Scotland in the UK to fulfil European state aid conditions arising from their government bailout. So they're raising money so that they can get money from another bank. Pretty good work if you can get it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The nature yeah. of banking since they're the They're competing with, in theory, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, though, as someone who doesn't live in the UK, I live in, in Florida, in the US, I read about Starling, it seems like almost every day, that they're pushing a, you know, a new product, a marketplace. Yeah. I mean, they, they have 
figured out the marketing side of this, and it's nonstop. Well, it's not just the marketing, but the delivery. You know, we're seeing yeah. Revolut in the UK, Monzo in the UK, and Starling. Like every four or five weeks, that, those guys are delivering something. Like Starling announced today that they've launched business bank accounts. Like it's out, it's available to anybody. It literally seems like they're just chasing each other forwards and, you know, really setting the pace for where banking going. I mean, it's all part of the evolution of banking. I mean, there's a big continuum here. This is not new, but it, the, uh, the value chain of banking is so wide open and it's been so compressed by, frankly, traditional thinking, but also very much traditional technology that the whole thing is blowing open now. And of course, there's people raising money that there's a lot to be done. There's, it's so exciting. There's so many different options, especially with, you know, fueled by technology, but it's a whole more modern approach to banking. And I think the business case changes when your marginal cost comes right down because your infrastructure isn't costing you massive amounts of money and your cost of acquisition comes down. Correct. But I think about banking. Banking which was started with data processing, as it was called, you know, 40 years ago. And everything just that, basically... That doesn't sound as sexy as FinTech, yeah. does it? Like, True, but, that, yeah, but that's like, the point. But that's the point. That's the challenge of banking. You everything got layered right? on top of it, and you end up with this big mainframe-based technology that's really in unagile, inagible, whatever the mm-hmm. word is. It's very difficult to innovate. Agree. And, and I think that's where the whole FinTech thing comes in. It's based on this continuum, but it's an entirely new approach. And I think that's what's really exciting. How, how do you find it ever in, well, you, like New York, beautiful it's place to live, very yeah, different pace in this? Yeah. I find it always very interesting, and Samuel probably, that I left the UK thinking, you know, the challenger banks were probably one of the most interesting things in FinTech because it was FinTech with a banking license. And in the US, the what no yeah. challenger bank there's like a gazillion banks the apps from the banks are pretty okay right like yeah. they're all very excited you can take pictures of your checks which is hilarious <laughs> i had to learn how to write a check when i moved so i'm curious to see if anyone will make the transition successfully to the to the us mm. so We're far all. like so yeah. there's a few trying isn't there yeah. number 26 have announced they're trying and revolut is going yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Tom Blomfield, CEO of Monzo, said they want a billion customers, so they're going to have to go gonna have somewhere yeah, with a big if base. If you think about it, not many fintech companies in general have gone from the UK to yes successfully, mm. and probably the other way around. I mean, if you take who's going to be the Beatles of fintech? Exactly, everybody's gone. They have like US investors. They've been a bit tepid, and we'll but now, I think what's cha- what's changing is the OCC, so the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency have got this new fintech charter license. Yeah, they, that they're, they, they're so having fights. It happened also in the UK. That's where challenger banks came from. It was, right. and it was a policy-inspired, we need more competition. The US has got different dynamics, but the whole psychology It's a very nice way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the Say whole that psychology. Again. We have nice, interesting <laughs> dynamics. No, no, but it's true. The, the, the psychology no. of being a challenger, why not the 6,000 whatever banks there are around the U.S., the quote tier three, tier four? I mean, why can they also not be challengers? They now are no longer have to just live in fear of the big guys with all that big technology stuff. They've got platforms and technology by which they could think what they want to do and accelerate. The big they banks have to are be a challenger to survive. They don't yeah. have a choice. Yeah. If you're a, a mid tier down, mm. Uh, honest to God, you're screwed right now unless you're moving, unless you're changing your thought process to say we're going to have to take risks when it comes to innovation. We're going to have to play because you've seen the money that, that Chase, that City, that Wells, 
By the way, their profit margins are ridiculous, and they're doing very well. Yeah. Now I think we're rolling back Volcker, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there is one big challenger bank, which is Goldman Sachs. Nobody thinks <laughs> yes. about it, but they're launching markets. I've so I never heard of Goldman Sachs. Yeah, Who are but, they? but yeah. they are a challenger retail yeah. bank, yeah. and they're what I think fintech startups are actually probably a bit more scared of now. Because Absolutely. Well, because Marcus is an entirely new technology infrastructure stack. It's not hooked to their legacy core tech. But the interesting thing, there's a story here from uh, Finextra that says, apparently customer service is better with challengers. So this is, comes, again, from a survey of a thousand Brits who can trust any Brits, um, especially, um, especially on a Friday night when they're not getting a beer. Um, but apparently 76% of digital um, First Direct Bank customers say that they are very satisfied with their banking relationships compared to 69% of those who bank with one of the top 50. Simply put... New challenger banks are born in the cloud. They've got a very different approach. Let's face it. Payments, for example, uh, banks, the traditional banking is, dates from Victorian times. The basic design is Victorian. It hadn't been modernized. So, of course, things like customer service are not going to be as good. But what I think is the really interesting thing, talking about challenger banks, is actually since the crisis and since the large banks have had some breathing space to comply and do all the things they have to now they're getting also modern cutting edge. So it's not just the challenger banks that are challenging, but the big banks now are really in a position to also challenge. So mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a moving playing field. It's very, very interesting. David, you talk about the service gap quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I, I should point out on this, it's digital hyphen first direct banks, not digital first direct. Yeah, I was Just, struggling to like, read that. There's, a, there's like a whole comma, like I'm not one for grammar and spelling, but definitely this is not talking about everybody being happy with first direct. But, no, no. But we, uh, yeah, we talk about this a lot in terms of actually how um, I, I genuinely think the uh, what is good is being rewritten now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, uh, the, the kind of levels of MPS or when it comes to customer service or, you know, really what a, a five-star review really means in banking is fundamentally shifting when we're seeing you know, intelligent digital services coming to market and replacing the sort of digitized analog products that we've seen in the past. Well, we used to have that one-to-one relationship with somebody that then yeah. got shoved into a computer screen that then got shoved onto a mobile phone. And actually, every time we shrunk the screen, the service got worse. Yeah, the, in the, the name of that bank reducing its cost, not in the name of you getting better service. Yeah. And now the expectation is aligned differently. From Yeah, I think when you're we fundamentally just trying to take paper and people out of a, a process, which is where most investments in digital banking really kind of came from in the, the earliest days, then there's no wonder that like 20 years later you go, yeah, the experience is actually just a bit shit, guys. Like we need to do something about this. So, you know, realistically, customer experience has only been a three-year thing. Uh, and now that it is and people are investing in that direction, then I completely agree. It becomes like a rethink on why, we're, why are we actually doing this? Why are we here? So this, um, I guess, to try and address this, a lot of big banks like to announce how much they're about to spend. And I'm sure like the vendors just start licking the lips. Do you lick your lips? <laughs> uh, a lot of marketing involved. There's a lot yeah. of marketing. Yeah. So, so apparently, um, City are going to spend more on their tech than all VC investment in US fintech. So um, the CEO revealed that their firm has spent more than $8 billion on tech last year, a sum greater than invested by VCs across the entire US fintech scene. Um, and Apparently, tech is only 20% of their expenses. They're just wow. hiring COBOL engineers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> They're just getting very expensive yeah. because there's like five left. Well, it's like, like being able to read Latin, right? Yeah, They're yeah, like yeah. little monks that are... Yeah. I, I come back, like, what do you need to... I've said this before, but what do you need to do with $8 billion? It's a lot of money. What is, what is so wrong that you have to spend $8 billion to kind of fix it? So, I know, that I think is actually probably the good news. The whole point about banking is that... 
especially with interest rates where they are, the business model needs to change. Mm-hmm. It's not investing just on how to do the old-fashioned, how to de-paperize or whatever. It's really about what new business model. So it's banking really is entering a very different space, including the good news is the top banks. So it's not just the challenger banks. When the big old banks were sitting there post-crisis, unable to really move because they had to fix everything, and there was a rush for challenger banks, which have very exciting um, uh, propositions, but also the top end now is trying to move again as well. You know, to be fair to City, though, it is $8 billion, and that is greater than the investment in the U.S. and everything. But City's just not focused on the U.S. They're mm. in every market. They're a global bank. 100 countries plus. And yeah, so, so cut that $8 billion I, up I mean, across. And then one solution, we know one solution doesn't work across multiple markets. I guess if you're only thinking of redoing your core banking platform, it costs half that. So imagine, <laughs> like, I, I, think, I, I think I remember one Australian bank, it was around $4 billion or something like that. So and this is the thing, those the digital transformation numbers are really scary. And transformation, digital transformation is such a weird word to me. It's like, can I go from water buffalo and transform into a butterfly? Like that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why am I going to digitally transform? I can either be digital or I can continue running this analog business model with this analog set of business processes and try and sprinkle some digital on it. In the U.S., some of the big banks are launching their own challenger banks, but they haven't made a lot of noise around it. I don't. I think J.P. Morgan. Oh, you got Finn. You've yeah. got Greenhouse by Wells, Finn yeah. by Chase. Yeah. Uh, but but I think I don't know why they're no, not marketing them. That, well, they're still no. they're not they're not. Already? Finn is still in internal uh, beta testing. Okay. Friends and family. Uh, yeah, Greenhouse but, isn't open to the public. But yet. the challenge there, in part, is that there has these are large institutions and change management and culture management and change. So the establishment of those internal challenger banks is a lot about perhaps a migration path for modernization of the core. It's the old problem of changing all the wheels on a bus when it's at full speed. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about how you would approach something like that. I, I think that's that's a great summary. I, I think like eight billion pound being spent isn't a technology problem. It's a culture problem that that makes sense. Um, but and I think a lot of people are kind of coming around to so there needs to be a better way than that. There, there has to be another way. All right. Um, our and finally story for our Money 2020 live show uh, is where John McAfee has gone full Charlie Sheen. So um, anybody have a McAfee antivirus back in the day? Anybody remember McAfee? You all had McAfee. Yeah. <laughs> and you got those stupid pop-ups every five minutes. That's like your McAfee antivirus wants to get your attention temporarily. Um, so he's announced his own currency, redeemable for time with him which i think is fantastic so this currency you can only use to get time with him um what what does he mean by time yeah well so uh, i don't know if anybody's seen but there is a netflix documentary all about john mcafee called uh, gringo and he's a bit crypto weird like he he's he's a all, bit. Uh, he's all the way out there <laughs> are, are you saying we all shouldn't have left our computer in his hands at that point then? i'm starting to worry what the hell mcafee antivirus did in the first place this guy is fully dodgy you know what i think though and all honesty and I'll say this because we, we tend to, especially in the U.S., we glorify tech leaders, right? Folks that have – Steve Jobs, right? The reality, I mean, fantastic what he did. The guy was a jerk in real life. I mean, I know Waz spoke earlier. Well, Waz is a nice guy, right? But, I mean, the reality is you read anything on Jobs and he just wasn't the nicest person in the world. And we do tend to glorify these folks. And it is, there's some backlash against Elon Musk lately, right? That, that's coming. A, a, a little. lot. Yeah. 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 He's maybe. Yeah. Uh, Peter Thiel, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so let's say since the last election, you're starting to go, yeah, mm. you know. Yeah, you guys have got a thing about sort of egomaniana. Yeah, <laughs> egotistical dickheads, which is why I kind of keep thinking I need to come spend more time with you in, in America. Really. <laughs> well, yeah, but then the flip side, um, we've got Microsoft here, right? Bill Gates has, to a degree, reinvented himself with Melinda and what they're doing. That's true. Right? You're like, oh, I'm completely sucking up to Microsoft right now. <laughs> as, as sponsor. Okay, yes, never mind. <laughs> you are awesome. But, I mean, honestly, they've, they've more or less reinvented themselves yes. in the next stage. Yes, including what they've done. deeply the business model. That's what's interesting. When I talk to banks about change, cultural change, they say, oh, you know, we've been doing this for years and I'm waiting for my pension. But big, even big institutions, even a big is like Microsoft can utterly transform itself. We did it with a new CEO, but I mean, th- there's a whole approach to doing it. And it's all about new business models and how to do it. And all of these stories, this noise on the side in financial services and money 20, whatever, it is noise. It's part of the pageant of how this transformation <laughs> word happens. But there's a lot of valuable elements in all this stuff and a lot of just hot air or whatever it was mm-hmm. that we're talking about that also permeates the whole thing. And you know, being here in Holland, I remember finding in a, uh, an antique store a silver um, uh, tulip bulb holder from an antique one and just goes to show sometimes around different big trends some you know, really amazing things can emerge. Indeed. Absolutely. All right. So um, that concludes part three of the show and most of the show itself. So, Anna, where can people find out more about you? Uh, on Twitter and on Reuters.com. Thank you, Anna Herrera. And Peter, what about yourself? Microsoft. All right. Thank you very much. Um, so on that note, that concludes a very special FinTech Insider Live at Money 2020. Audience, have you had a good time? Thank you so much to Money 2020 for having us. And thank you to our lovely guests, Lita, Rob, Jeff, Sarah, Anna, and Peter. Let's have a round of applause for them. And we, we want to take the opportunity. We want to recognize our media team. We have a, an unbelievable team. So Ollie, Laura, Michael, who's wandering around. All the stuff you see, the videos, the quality of the podcasts that go out and that you're hearing, it's those folks, and they're ridiculously good. And be sure to give yourselves a cheer. Go on. Why not? Woo. To find out more about us, visit us on 11fs.com and check out Fintech Insider on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and pretty much every other social channel that's going as well. Um, You can find us on iTunes at your favorite podcast client and subscribe and leave us one of those reviews. We love listening to those reviews. Thanks very much, guys. Good night. 